Boom, people. Welcome back to the show. Today, I've got with me Hunter Thompson. Hunter is the founder of ASIM Capital. He is a private equity firm based out of Los Angeles, California. Since founding ASIM Capital, he has overseen the, the raising and deployment over $90 million into different assets across the country. He's the author, author of his new book, Raising Capital for Real Estate, How to Attract Investors, Establish Credibility, and Fund Deals. And like everybody we bring on the show, Hunter did not go to an Ivy League school, didn't work on Wall Street. I think he got an undergraduate degree from the University of Tennessee. You'll see in this episode, we talk through how he's raised money, what he did wrong, and how he's done this over the last decade. An incredible episode, and I think you guys enjoy it. So Hunter, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah. Um, so talk us through how you got started. You, I mean, you had an impressive story with real estate, you have books now, you've got your fund. How did you get started? You never worked on Wall Street, I don't believe, right? Did you have, did right. you have a stint at Wall Street? Nothing no, there. No, far from it. School. So yeah, tell us your story. How did you get into this game? Yeah, so it's actually interesting regarding the Wall Street thing. I'll talk briefly about that. So when I was in college, I studied economics, was drawn to economics, but the things I learned about economics in college didn't really position me well for operating in the real world. And But I was very interested in the topic, and so studying it not only from an academic perspective, but also kind of as a side hustle. Um, when 2008 happened, it was a massive green light for me. I was insulated from that risk because I was still finishing up school and saw it as an opportunity to buy what blood was in the streets, which was just the mantra that had been repeated throughout my life. So I started learning as much as I could, just going through reading Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, just focusing on value investing, learning a bit about algorithmic trading and investing in companies that I thought were going to be really well positioned outside of the recession once that recovery took place. And so I had success doing that as almost anyone did that started in 2000. You're in college at this point or how old are you at this point? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, You're in college, right. okay. Uh, college at that point. Awesome. And then I have actually a background as a professional poker player. So kind no of way. rolled some money out of that and then started investing my own money and then started investing friends and family capital. But I basically hit a big wall when 2010 happened. And that's something that I don't think it's talked about at all, especially not nearly enough, which was the European debt crisis. Basically, Europe suffered something very similar to what happened in the United States, complete lack of liquidity, central banks freezing up, massive bailouts, and it created unbelievable volatility in the US markets. And I basically said, this is completely uncomprehendable. This is unmitigatable. This risk of what the Greece bond yields are going to do is not something I'm going to spend the rest of my career focusing on. I've got to find something that's predictable. And uh, real estate's where I ended up. You have a lot of investments in in Europe, a lot of holdings out there? Or that's the thing. I didn't. No, that's the thing. I didn't have any real estate holdings in, in Europe or non-real estate holdings in Europe. It was just that all of a sudden, all the CNBC anchors were saying, if the Greece bond yields remain below 7%, the S&P 500 is going to be fine. But if it goes above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And I just, how am I supposed to create an investment thesis around something as obscure as the Greece bond yields? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So, so you see this big crowd and you're, so you're doing, you're on the weekends, you're stealing money from all your friends and people on the poker table. You're investing it. I love that. That's awesome. By the way, what, what kind of, what did you play by the way? Like what, what was your game? Did you play any like. Yeah. So pre black Monday, uh, the, um, the 
internet world of poker was just incredibly lucrative. It was just very asymmetric. If you focused and got a coach, you could make five, 10, 15, $20,000 a month, depending on how dedicated you were. And, you know, I used to play two, four and three, six on poker stars. Um, so it's a two, four, like $400 buy-in, $600 buy-in. And I probably played around 300,000 poker hands in my life. Now that's not nearly as much as some of the people that I know, but you know, that was over about a year or so. So basically full-time for a year. Jeez, that's awesome. <laughs> that's great, dude. Um, and do you still play a lot just for fun or do you still, uh, yeah, I don't. Investment in itself. Just give me your money. I'll go. I'll go gamble. I'll get you guys a good return, right? <laughs> yeah, it's very popular in the poker world, but the reality is, it's not scalable. You know, and we're going to talk a lot today about funds and why they just unlock this massive, massive vehicle for scalability within real estate, which is the sector that I participate in. But you can do it within anything. Yeah. But the world of grinding it out and making the money I was talking about earlier. Sure, it's fun as a summer job when you're a college student. But when it's time to really level up and create multi-generational wealth, real estate and particularly with the X factor of fund creation, fund mechanics, it's you know very different. Yeah. All right. So back to the story, right? So it's 2010. You just, you, you, that spooks you, that whole European debt credit, the S&P 500's on the bond market. So what do you do next? So I moved to California during this time. And that's an interesting part of the story because California got completely decimated by the crash. And I feel very fortunate because of that, not necessarily because of the market timing, because I ended up not really investing in California, but because of something, uh, from my perspective, more powerful, which was that when I wanted to go and build my thesis in the real estate sector, I was surrounded by people who had been able to weather the storm. And so the investment strategies that they implemented to focus on syndications, you know, purchasing 15 to $50 million assets, as opposed to doing fix and flips and single family rentals, I was able to leapfrog a lot of those more introductory, more, you know, stage one, stage two of your career type of real estate strategies and jump right into the world of those quasi institutional deals. And from my perspective, the recession resistant components of some of the asset classes like the mobile home park business in particular, also self-storage, it's very compelling. And so I jumped right into that part of the sector and very quickly created my own track record and then created my first fund uh, to pull friends and family capital. Yeah, that's, so how did you jump in? Were you, what did you, were you doing syndications at the beginning? Were you doing your own deals? Did you partner with somebody else? How did that, what did that look like? So Good question. Um, the term syndication is something that a lot of people are familiar with now, but uh, you know, back in 2010 or so, that term was basically only limited to ultra high net worth investors. Mm-hmm. It's something that most people, even accredited investors, didn't have access to. It was just before the Jobs Act even, which allowed people to do these deals online. Mm-hmm. So basically, I looked at the entire real estate sector and I found myself very drawn to the components of diversification that were not achievable if I were to focus on only one niche. The problem though, is that that's necessary if you're going to have a market advantage in the sense that I need to only be doing self-storage facilities in Florida if I'm going to have an advantage in that market. I can't be doing office and retail and industrial and without giving up something to my competitors. But as an investor, I want to have a hand in all of those sectors. So now this is something that's kind of in common practice. But at the time I was thinking, how can I find a way to defer to someone else's expertise and provide LP capital? And Mm -hmm. so I identified some managers that were having trouble raising capital for the first time in their careers in the wake of 2008. 
and they had tremendous track records. And so I started investing $25,000, $50,000 with them. And that was the beginning of my LP track record, um, which I later leveraged to create a fund of funds type of structure. And then, you know, skipping ahead, we went from five investors to 10 to hundreds. And now we've purchased roughly $100 million worth of commercial real estate. So we can talk about everything in between, but that's kind of the, the big picture summary. So, and to this day, are you still doing fund of funds model? Kind of a combination of both. So my firm, ASIM Capital, um, basically curates and acts as an investor relations branch to our joint venture partners. So we identify firms that are in need of significant capital. Uh, we create an entity to pool our investors together and then invest in LP capital. And we kind of get the benefits of both worlds, right? Because we have a Rolodex of really savvy and advanced operators, but those that don't really want to deal with the investor relations side of the business. And so we leverage our platform, our conference, our real estate show uh, to facilitate that capital and also manage that capital through uh, our online portal and a variety of other technological and uh, you know solutions to that problem. That's awesome. Plus that's I love doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, and yeah, for we actually, I looked at setting up a fund of funds last year. Um, awesome. Yeah. It's a great thing. Cause you can, you, a lot of these funds have minimum thresholds, minimum investment commitments. You can get over that as a fund of funds. Sometimes you get discounts. If you put in an X amount of dollars, the fund will give you a discount on management fees. And then you get to diversify these investors' money between a number of different managers. Like you said, I, it's, it's actually a very, very great model for people that want to be truly passive investors and be, yes, I want to be in real estate. I just don't know which firm to go with. Put me in, you know, eight different firms. And uh, it's a great, that's, that's an awesome thing. So do you, and do you guys advertise? Do you have a 506C fund or how do you guys run ads and, and have an online, you know, following and funnel and that's how you find investors or how does that look? Yeah, good question. So, and just for the listeners that may not be familiar with the terminology, so 506C is a, an exemption from registration. So real estate deals need an exemption from basically going public because it's very economically burdensome to do so. So one of the exemptions is a 506C offering or a 506C exemption. And that exemption allows us to basically publicly solicit investors. And so, yes, technically we use a 506C offering. We don't exactly publicly solicit investors. And I'd say that I would probably advise against doing it specifically on a deal by deal basis. But what we did, we could do and what I'll do right now, and I could not do it if I wasn't using this exemption, mm -hmm. is to say something to the effect of, you know, we have a live investment opportunity. Go to our website, create an account, and you can have instant access to the deal. Mm -hmm. That would be probably considered a public solicitation, but it's kind of a gray area. But that's all that I really need to say because people are interested in the deal and that way we can drive traffic to the website as opposed to give away all the details and then they feel like they can make a decision based on that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and for listeners too, I think four or five episodes, I had a whole episode on 506B versus 506C, the differences there. So you can go back and you know see all those differences. But yeah, 506C funds are becoming more popular right now. Um, there are a few things you have to verify your investors are accredited or qualified purchase or qualified clients, whatever your fund, you know, whatever you file as. But okay, that's awesome. And that's how, are, are you guys currently raising money right now? Or have you capped out? Where, what are you looking to do in the next 12 months? So, you know what, before we even go any further, I'm going to just thank you for what you've put together and this conversation so far. Dan, it makes me so excited that the industry has 
advanced so quickly because of firms like yours and the conversations that we're having. You know, five years ago, half of my conversations with investors were explaining what a syndication was and trying to see, no, just because you're deferring to someone else's expertise doesn't mean it's a Ponzi scheme. In fact, this is the way that real wealth has been created in this country for hundreds of years. So- (laughs) Thank you, first of all. Well, your show is great. Yeah. yeah, you're doing the same thing. So congrats to you as well. We're kind of exposing this, this, this industry a little bit. So That's exactly the word, exposing the fact that this is what's been going on behind the scenes. And now, because of the Jobs Act in particular, accredited investors have tremendous access to this incredible vehicle. Um, so as far as raising funds, so it's as a recording of this, it's the end of August. We have not done a deal in 2020. Um, part of that is because of the uncertainty in the market. Part of that is because the reduction in deal volume as a result of COVID has made price discovery quite challenging. Now, um, again, as of the recording of this, we're very close to putting out our first deal. It's a non-real estate deal. It's the first time that we've done that through our firm. But I've invested in with this particular operator for, for quite some time. And um, it's very, very exciting especially given it just went through a massive sensitivity test basically with COVID. So very cool Cool. stuff. Awesome. Now I want to talk about your book in just a second you came out with, but I want to go, sorry, I got to go back. So we talk a lot about fund formation, the nuts and bolts of setting up a fund or syndication. When you were first doing this, how did you figure all this out? Did you have a mentor? Did you read books? I mean, and how did you put all the pieces together? What'd you do? I spent a hundred thousand dollars in legal fees. Because I I had to try different things. There wasn't a good template. Um, I know that you know what it looks like on the inside of a PPM. That template has been created now just recently. I mean, over the last eight years or so where there's a a good solid structure for what should be included and what not to be included, especially as many of your listeners likely know, when it comes to fund mechanics, there's all these questions that need to be answered. And I've done many iterations of it because there wasn't many comps in the industry. So I don't want to bore everybody, but I'll just give you an example. If you're going to raise a fund, do you raise all the money up front? Do you have a capital call provision? We call 22% on year one and 22% in year two. Can there be a wide variety in terms of what you can invest in? If someone invests in at the end of this term, as opposed to beginning the term, do they get different? Every variation of that I've done and paid for. And now, a lot of those answers have been solidified so that hopefully you won't have to spend the $100,000 I spent uh, forming. But I did have mentors and books, but they just weren't as advanced and detailed as you would need to answer all those questions on your own. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I've actually interviewed quite a few people on the show and I've heard that, that similar story of, well, I just paid for it, right? And that's <laughs> kind of what we're trying to do with our, our pro. We have a mastermind program, stuff like that is, is help educate people and, and show them all the iterations so they can go to a lawyer and say, hey, I want X, Y, and Z. And they can get it for a lot cheaper than, you know, hundred G's for that. And then you got to make the money on poker on weekends, you know, to, to pay for that. So, <laughs> right. Okay. So, well, congrats on your fun, by the way, a huge success um, and to your podcast and show and everything. So talk us through your new book that's just come out. So this is the, so you're the author of raising capital for real estate, how to attract investors, establish credibility and fund deals. Why, first off, why write a book? What's the book about? Um, give us the quick and dirty rundown of this, this book. So we kind of have a little bit about my background and you can tell I'm passionate about this. I do feel like we're kind of revolutionizing this space, which has been one of the slowest to change with the age of technology and the fact that you can Google good real estate investments. Now the challenge is how to figure out who to trust, right? Mm-hmm. So because of that though, once I started to establish a track record for myself, 
which was mostly in the mobile home park business early on, uh, asset class that I've been a big proponent of for the last 10 years or so, I realized, okay, this is working. The investment thesis is very compelling in the sense that the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for the product. And the municipalities all over the country are not allowing new mobile home parks to be built. So you've got this really interesting situation where all these baby boomers, 10,000 a day, many of them have very little savings or no savings, growing the demand for affordable housing. At the same time, the supply is shrinking. It's a very unique opportunity for investors. So I started investing, had success and said, okay, I'll create a fund that does what you just outlined, gets preferential treatment for investing, let's say half million dollars as opposed to 50,000. And that way I can justify getting a little bit of the deal at the investing entity level. Mm -hmm. And I had a luncheon and was only allowed to be attended by accredited investors, send it out to friends and family, plus one, plus two, et cetera. And 30 people showed up. So, you know, probably $30 million in the room. I gave a presentation that I would basically give today, I felt was very compelling and justified the thesis. And at the end of the presentation, sent out a piece of paper and said, write what you want to invest on the piece of paper and send it in to me. And so they had a clipboard, they were passing around or what? They all, they each had their own piece of paper, so it could be private. I didn't want someone to be writing $300,000 and slide it in and everyone would know that person wrote $300,000. So So, it was private. They were putting in papers. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And it was a good thing I did that because I went and counted afterwards and I had raised a grand total of zero dollars. (laughs) Oh, not a dollar. Yeah. And I was shocked. I mean, the economic implications of this kind of failure was kind of sad, but the heartbreaking part was the fact that I thought that it was on. I was like, I discovered this thing. This is already working for me. The operating partner we're talking about has been doing this at an elite level to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. What could possibly go wrong? And the answer was that room was not prepared for that investment thesis. Hmm. That room was not going to go from people who had never invested in real estate to investing in mobile home parks of all things in a 30 minute presentation given by someone far younger and probably less successful than them. And I realized, number one, I don't ever want to put myself in that position again. I need to be never in a room only with 30 people. If I'm going to give a presentation, I need to be in front of thousands or the ability to be viewed by thousands. $30 million of net worth is nothing if that the people who own that net worth are not, to a certain extent, indoctrinated into your worldview when it comes to investing. And so I created a platform on how to do that. And now we've gone from failing to raise a dollar to raising, you know, 30 million, $40 million um, by doing what I put into the book. So that's why I wrote it. And that's what it's all about. Oh, that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I've actually, I've mentioned that same thing on, uh, on this show before is it's hard. Some people try to go to investors and hit like, it's, I, I use the analogy of like putting, they try to hit the 200 foot putt from way down the green, right? And they're trying to convince somebody of a brand new investment. They've never seen it before. They're trying to, you know, just to edge, they got, there's this huge education curve, right? And then there's some investors that's just a little putt. They're already in the space. They already like what you're doing. It's just a simple putt. And, um, and finding those investors, and sometimes you're just in the wrong room. You're talking to the wrong person, right? Finding the putt and just go after the easy putts. Just hit the little tap in putts. Um, so anyways, a little bit, a little bit different than what you're talking about. But I, yeah, we've talked about that before on this show of, of, pitch raising and I guess pitching money from investors. Um, 
So you, you, okay. That's the reason you wrote the book. So tell, walk us through some inside this book. So you, 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 and on the title, it's how to attract investors, establish credibility and fund deals. So what do you mean by that? So basically it's kind of a similar concept to a big, like influential person in my life, uh, Orrin Claff, who wrote a book called pitch anything. I love his stuff, dude. I am such a proponent of Orrin Claff. Sorry. I, I love, I love him, dude. Yeah. Yeah. He's entertaining. If you haven't read the book and you're thinking about getting into this world, it's 100% a must read after you read my book, of course, but I quote him in the book several times and he actually gave me a quote on the back of the book. So I'm a big proponent of that. So basically, I don't ever want to go around trying to convince someone to invest with me. It doesn't work. It makes me feel sleazy. And by the way, it's not scalable. What I want to do is position myself in such a manner that I never have to do that again. And it's the actually the only way to make this business interesting and fun. And it can turn you from trying to go to a hundred phone calls a day of a bunch of no's to I rarely have to take phone calls with investors before they send me $200,000, $300,000, not because they're idiots, but because they know so much about me, my brand, my philosophy, my investment strategy, and the deal itself in a scalable manner that doesn't require a lot of my time. So the book is about how to create that infrastructure. You know, how can I attract mentors that are going to give me their entire playbook? Number one, you know, how can I create a platform on which to educate, to nurture, to capture leads, and then take them through an indoctrination process for lack of a better term that will allow them to be very knowledgeable by the time we make an opportunity available to them. And you can do this by a combination of podcasts and webinars and in-person interviews and, and phone calls. But just constantly think about scalability, replicatability, and at the end of the day, the negative interest rate bond market is $17 trillion. There's a lie out there that there's a scarcity of capital. Capital is literally the most readily available thing in the world. It's just a matter of finding those people that are happy if they only lose 1% when they invest in Japanese bond to say, by the way, we have a five cap in Austin that you're going to love. Which you know? is, that is wild to me. I, I mentioned, I've talked about this the last couple of months, 17 trillion. They, that, meaning those fund managers have looked around and said, well, the best investment we got is a guaranteed loss in Europe. Only a little Japan. bit. Yeah. That's only just, we'll, we'll just lose a little bit. That's their best investment they possibly have. Um, that gives a lot of hope to people like me and you <laughs> that actually can find alpha. They can actually find yield out in the world. Well, yes, 100%. Now, why is that the case? Why is it the case that those bond managers are interested in that? It's because of what I talk about in the book. It just happens to be that their investments aren't quite very lucrative. It's marketing. It's credibility. The Bank of Japan has more credibility than ASIM Capital. Therefore, the returns can be lower. So what we want to do is just share the name, share the brand, and, and do things like eBooks, which I'm a huge proponent of. If you're listening to this and you're contemplating creating your own fund, there's no reason not to have an eBook. And if you're not a writer, the easiest way to just create something like this, and I'm talking about in the next week, you're knowledgeable about your sector. And if not, you better be before you raise any money. Have your friend interview you on this very topic, go to rev.com, use their AI program. You don't even have to use actual person, use their AI program to convert that conversation into a transcription, go in and retype it, hire a copy editor on upwork.com, pay them a thousand dollars. You've got your lead capture mechanism. 
And now you can do the one thing that it takes to really make this business work, which is capture leads and nurture them through that educational process. So you're saying for potential people, go out, set up an ebook and start giving that out to investors as a lead magnet. Get people in, they opt in, you give them your, your thing, your investment thesis, start warming them up towards you, your investment thesis, your credibility, everything behind you. That's what you're saying? It, exactly because wow. the reason that I failed on my first capital raise is I assumed that that 30 minute presentation, if delivered by someone who's knowledgeable and confident as I am today, that I convert these people to real estate investors. But the reality is that's far from the truth. It may take months, but it may not, it doesn't need to take months of your time. You see the difference there in the sense that if you can create these lead capture mechanisms, you can create this highly scalable infrastructure of content. And that content is actually useful to the people that are listening. They may be ready to invest in six months or a year or two years, but the point is you have the most important tool, which is their email address. And it's just a really powerful concept that I certainly wasn't taught in school, but it's how businesses are created. It's just that the financial sector has been slow to recognize this. Hmm. I love that. So um, I love that. So that answers the first part of it, how to attract investors. Um, establishing credibility. Now you mentioned that a second ago. Can you talk about that for a second? So how do you establish that credibility? Is it by doing a couple of small scale deals, um, getting a, a small tracker? That's how I did. That's how I did it for my funds. I did a small syndication. It was like $50,000. We got money together. I got those investors a good return. And then I leveraged that into our next thing and next thing. Um, walk us through it. How, you know, there's lots of ways to build, build credibility. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I'll start with something as simple as this. If you're going to be getting on the phone call with an investor, there's a couple of tips that can probably drastically increase your credibility before you even say a word about your track record. You know, most people's decisions, and you know this, you've likely dealt with institutional players in the space. Everyone believes that at some elite level, all human inclination is gone. And the reality is people buy based on emotional reasons mm -hmm. at, trust me, I've been in those $10 million, $50 million meetings. And the truth is people make investments based on who they trust, the likelihood of their credibility, their previous relationship with them, et cetera. So when you get on a call with an investor, the first thing I'd say is, hi, this is Hunter with ASIM Capital. Is now still a good time for you? Yes. Okay, perfect. I've got us blocked from two to 2.30. I want to talk about this, this, and this. And I'd like to ask you a couple questions and I'd like you to ask me any questions you have, but I have to run at three, uh, 2.30 because I have another call. That right there, just establishing the time period of the call and that you're going to outline the schedule because you've done it so many times, that's huge. And I know that sounds like a small tip, but if you haven't been doing that, do that on your next call. You'll understand that it, the rest of it will go much more smoothly, mostly because the investor doesn't want to be brought into some long, drawn-out, nightmarish pitch, and neither should you. So that's one thing. As far as the track record is concerned, yes, absolutely. You should be able to provide referrals and references. And I particularly like to provide professional third-party references. Investor references are great, but if I have an accountant, an attorney, a uh, real estate manufacturing company or real estate development company that can back up the claims that I've made because we've worked together for years, that's far more compelling from my perspective. And I go into a lot of detail in that in the book, but those are a couple ideas. Interesting. I love that. Uh, that's, that's really cool. Um, those, that's a very actual, easy tip. I love that. Just have, a, have an agenda, have a schedule, have things mapped out, have a plan. <laughs> and I think Oren Claff talks about that in pitch, back to the book, pitch anything. He, he does a very good job of walking you through the pitch room, the boardroom, how that looks, how do you 
present, how to get people to stick the, the crocodile brain. I love all, all what he goes into in there. I love that. So exactly. Yeah. That's where I quote him in the book. Oh, do you? Oh, great. So, um, I want to ask you about your, uh, degree and with school, you went to university of Tennessee. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Volunteers. Right. Um, I love Tennessee, by the way, my dad's from Tennessee, born there, grew up in Las Vegas, but I love Tennessee. I've been there a few times. Um, you didn't do it. Did you do an MBA? No, I studied political science and economics. How, so yeah, you talked a lot about econ earlier. How much of a role has that played when pitching investors? Has it been a big deal? Have they asked about it? Have they asked about higher education? Um, and what are your thoughts on getting an MBA or doing higher education? Well, there's different strokes for different folks, but I'll give you some context because that's not a very useful term. So first of all, let me just tell you about my experience with academia. Um, I was not impressed and neither were they. It was mutual. Okay. (laughs) To put some numbers on that, I got straight A's my last three semesters as the coursework was more challenging and more aligned with what I was interested in. And I graduated with a 3.0. Okay. So what happened was I got there and started taking general education was like, there's no depth. There's no there's no substance here. And it's so interesting because I thought like most kids would, well, I really don't have a knack for this and I'm not that intelligent or whatever. But the truth is it's not set up for my skill set. You know, if you go listen to my podcast, if you listen to 10 of our podcasts, you'll recognize it's one of the most dense and to some extent dry podcasts that's out there. It's not a beginner podcast, but That's what excites me. I want to talk to IMF consultants. I want to talk to people who represent billions of dollars of real estate and go into not just what their thesis is and their background, but like their literal underwriting standards. How are they underwriting deals? And how do those underwriting standards change in different market conditions and based on interest rates and cap rates? And that's the stuff that actually interests me, but that's antithetic to school. So what that means is I'm not set up for changing gears every 50 minutes. I like the Joe Rogan experience because I want to go for three and a half hours with one particular guest and one particular topic. So as far as the MBA thing is concerned, uh, for my, we have a a CFO that did get his master's in real estate and he's absolutely set up for that sector. He's a CFO, Mm -hmm. super like book nerd meets entrepreneur, like perfect combination. But for me, I was not well suited for that position. And I thought the fund model was a great way to overcome that by just starting my track record. Mm-hmm. So maybe a wordy answer, but for anybody that feels insecure about not succeeding or just being a pronounced success when it comes to academia, uh, don't worry. Um, and for anyone that does, good for you. What really matters though is can you over deliver for your clients and can you track thousands of them? Mm-hmm. So whatever the easiest route to that is. Yeah. Wise words. I, uh, I agree with you. Um, yeah, I think it just different, what you say different strokes for different folks. I like that. Um, depends on you and what your plans are in future is, um, me, my first actually two years of college, I didn't take, I think I took one general class. I took negotiation class. I took a coding class. I took a real estate investing class because I was like, that interests me. And they, I met with a counselor and she was like, you're, have you even started school? And I'm like, right. yeah, I've learned a ton. I started like three businesses my first two years of school. And I was like, I am like, she's like, well, on paper, you, you're like a first semester freshman. And I was like, well, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't take, you know, I don't know, humanities one, one one but I learned a ton of stuff. And so, um, I tried to extract as much as I could, but I, I loved your answer. Um, I want to ask you, Coach, so switching gears, 
a lot of people on the show want to start funds, want to do deals in the future, but feel caught up of, am, am I really that good enough to, to do this? I feel like an imposter, right? Um, you know, I've, I've, I think I can do it. I think I have a good investment thesis, but there's all in the back of their head, like, man, this, this could break. It could work. What if I lose all this money? Have you felt that doubt when raising money for investors or starting a fund? And if so, how did you overcome that? And, um, and yeah, give us your thoughts on that. Okay. So I'll give you the truth and then maybe I'll give you something more helpful than that. Right? So the truth of that is that a lot of that can be overcome by surrounding yourself by mentors that will give you all the answers to all your questions. And it's especially cool if you can do it for free, but sometimes it's cool to pay too, so you can get the information more curated more quickly. Hmm. Um, Even if you're paying for it though, it's important to attract the right ones. So in the book, I talk about something called the key momentum indicators, which are basically personality traits that if you do this, the right people are going to say, this person is going to take off like a rocket ship And in the back of my mind, I'm going to think, do I want to help them? And later when they write their book, that they're going to mention me? Or is this person just going to be a competitor of mine in four years? That is really powerful to the right people because the right type of mentors are competitive. And it doesn't mean that they're competitive in the sense that they want to see others fail. It means that part of their competition is how big of a sphere of positive influence can they create? Dude. And when you're tapping into that from the right people, it's just the gold mine. So the key five momentum indicators, a sense of urgency about accomplishing your goals, the speed of execution, the attention to detail and a high demand for excellence, having an obsession with growth and learning and kind of never settling for your own knowledge about something, going deep on topics, and curiosity about new topics. As an example, if someone says, this is a new concept. You need to know about it. And then a week later, you go to that mentor and you say, this is what I've learned about this topic. That's like kryptonite or whatever the opposite of kryptonite is. To a mentor, they go, okay, he's creating their own momentum. The point is, I'm going 150 miles an hour. Do you want to help me go 160? Not, I'm going zero. Can you help me go 50? You have to create your own momentum and then all of a sudden it works. So there's the truth. So yeah, there you I go. I would 100% agree with that. I've, I've joined, just to cut you off, I want to hear the second part of your answer, but I've, I've joined, I don't know, me and my business partner have spent, I don't know, $40,000, $50,000 on courses and programs just to educate and train ourselves on just random stuff like YouTube ads and Facebook and fun stuff, raising money. And um, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of the mentors, the guys that run those programs. And they always say there's about, there's a chunk of people in all those programs that end up doing nothing. They, they buy it. They never even log in once to the program. <laughs> program and they never asked for a refund, but he goes, it's that what you just said is they, they don't have momentum in their life. There's, we can't do anything with, on a, with a parked car, get the car moving. And then we can teach you how to drive and you know, and all this stuff, the car's got to get out of the station, get moving. And we finally figured that out and said, okay, we're all in on these programs. We're going to, you know, get the car moving, get the momentum. I love that. So, sorry, keep going. Second part of your, your answer. Well, look at the, everyone deals with imposter signal, uh, you know, that challenge imposter syndrome is a reflective of someone who's taken their business seriously. Hmm. it's not common for fools to feel that way. It's common for people who understand the complexities, the challenges, the implications, the burden that it would mean to say, give me your hard-earned $50,000 and let me protect it for 10 years during this illiquid investment. And so, of course, we deal with that. I mean, all people that, the people that should be trusted with other people's money are going to all deal with that. Um, But like you said, those 50,000 
$10,000 mentorship programs, which I've paid $10,000 to get in a room. And you know what they do in that room? Half of what they do is say where you thought the ceiling was based on your skill set is much higher than you think. In fact, it likely doesn't exist. Want proof? Here's a lot of it. And so that's what's so interesting about the non-academia world where in academia, you're taught, learn this skill, get a job at a factory, and you're going to be okay. By the way, here's a bunch of hurdles that are going to be in your life that you never overcome. That's the opposite of the reality of capitalism, which is why I'm such a big proponent of it. There's, in real estate, we look at comps, right? The comp on your potential success, well, there's a lot of extremely compelling comps to the tune of billions of dollars. So just get out there and get moving. Hmm. I love that. That's awesome. And then, so you personally, so you, you said you felt that. And I, I love yeah. what you mentioned. Anyone that's going to be a good money raiser is probably going to, or a money manager is going to feel that in their life. Cause that's the nature. If you're, if you don't feel that at all, you're probably, there's probably maybe something else going on. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I felt that in my funds too. I, and I, I, I love my investment thesis and something that helped me just to piggyback what you said was, investing my own dollars alongside my investors. So I would say, Hey guys, I'm in this with a significant amount of my personal wealth as well. So I'm, I've got skin in the game. If this goes, if it loses money, I'm losing money too. So I'm, I'm all in on this thing, but I'm, I'm almost certain we're going to do well and it's going to be a great investment. Yes. You could lose money. Yes. It could all go to crap. Things can change, but I'm confident enough. I'm going to put my own money down with you in this investment. We're going to go all in on it. That's yeah. helped me kind of get over that. Yeah. Tremendously. If you create the incentive alignment structure mm -hmm. in such a manner that doesn't rely on the character of the principles, then you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to wake up in a bad mood or not. You just create the incentive alignment structure in such a streamlined manner that you just do what's in your own best interest. And so, you know, to your point, uh, typically somewhere around 75 to 90% of our compensation is based entirely on performance above a preferred return. I'm usually one of the largest investors in each of our offerings. So what does that mean? We don't do a lot of deals. Hmm. We do deals that I'm confident are going to perform. It's not because I'm just a great guy. It's because I don't want to lose money and I don't want to blow up my own business. Hmm. Yep. Oh, I love that. Number one rule of investing, don't lose money, right? That's right. There it is. Um, rule number two, remember the first rule, right? So yeah. that's, yeah, Warren Buffett, Charlie Hunger, right? So, um, well, great, man. We've already been on for already, already 40 minutes. Um, this is time's flying. Um, get, what... So if, uh, last kind of two questions here. Number sure. one is what would be some advice you would give to a young person or not young, but young in the investing or fund management world looking to get into this space? What advice would you give them or maybe even give your younger self when you're getting into this game? So the world of investing is about looking at things on a risk adjusted basis. Um, that's mm -hmm. the reason that we named our firm ASIM Capital, it's short for asymmetric, right? So when you can find wildly asymmetric investments, whether it be time, money, resources, or otherwise, that may produce wildly favorable returns, you should make those moves. And when you start thinking about things like that on a risk-adjusted basis, as opposed to something like a pros and cons list, which doesn't allow for that weight of the potential outcomes, it makes a lot of sense to do things like, I'll give myself a pitch, buy a book for $8.00 right? The book is about how I build a hundred million dollar real estate firm. So maybe worst case scenario, you blow your eight bucks. Maybe like in terms of masterminds and coaching programs, I'm a huge proponent of all of that because what is at stake 
is what the principles of those firms have been able to accomplish. And the downside is limited to whatever financial commitment you make. Um, that's true oh, also. Yeah, in invest eight dollars, yeah. and you probably are going to get a positive return on your investment. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, and so, I mean, that stuff is really powerful to me. I'd say that really focusing on your your network is critical because that's the snowball at which you'll turn your career over and grow and grow and grow. Basically your career will grow similar to the way that compounding interest grows. And you can compound at 4% and keep up with inflation, or you can surround yourself by people that have the tools to make you compound at 33%. You can double the size of your business every year or three years, I should say. So that's really powerful. Um, there's an incredible amount of resources available on the internet in terms of the podcast mechanism, of course. But um, from my perspective, it's really about attracting those, those right team players and going all in on those relationships. Because look, I know when we corresponded via email, I said, here's an example of things I've talked about. And I sent you like the driest, most tactic-based podcast I've ever done about funding mechanics because it's mm -hmm. aligned with your brand. Yeah. But guess what? That isn't the difference between people that succeed and fail. The difference between succeeding and failing is not understanding the mechanics of the fund. It's who has a best friend when things go wrong. If I have a problem with my loan, I need to call a friend of mine to solve that problem. I need an extension. Call the principal of the bank. That's the way that real estate problems get solved. So if you have more best friends, your likelihood of loss of principal is reduced drastically. The strategy and the tactics are mandatory, but they're not going to be your differentiating factor. Hmm. Wow. Mic drop. Hunter, that was, that was powerful. Um, uh, th thank you so much for coming on today. I, I, um, man, that, man, that was, that was a, a great episode. I, I really appreciate you coming on. How can people learn more about you, find your podcast, your book, your programs, all that kind of stuff. Um, how can we get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. So the book you can get for free plus shipping at raising capital for Um, actually, you know what? We have a, another giveaway that we just created, which is 111 questions passive investors should be asking. So the reason I like this for your audience is that if you're creating your own fund, if you can answer these 111 questions, you're very well positioned to talk to any investor. And you can get that at CFC, as in Cashflow Connections, cfcmentorshipprogram.com forward slash questions. Cool. cfcmentorship.com. Mentorshipprogram.com. Cool. Slash questions. Okay, I just wrote it down. Um, we'll have that in the show notes below if you guys want to get that. So pretty cool. Um, and then that, you have the free book for a book plus shipping. And your what's the name of your podcast? It's the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. And those specifically is going to be entertaining for like the econ nerds out there. Okay, awesome. Well, Hunter, thank you again for coming on. We'll, we'll, uh, I, I'm excited. Actually, I have not read your book yet. I'm going to get a copy today. Um, I'm excited to actually dive into that. I'll get, actually, I'm going to get all that stuff. Um, I'm very intrigued. So thank you for coming on today. Hopefully we'll have you back in the future as well. It'd be fun to have you back on and we'll dive deeper into other stuff, but thank you so much. Happy to do it.